0: Hello, hello, everybody. Uh, I am your host, Michael Lombardo. Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I am very excited to dive into the topic that we're going to be getting into here today and to have my guest on the show. We are diving into a subject that I really believe is going to bless you and open up your eyes and awaken your heart to see the Bible in a deeper way than you ever have before because I know it did that with me. And so. While you're at it, you can go and if you go on to iTunes, Spotify, um, Google Play, even if you see it on Facebook, but my podcast, Awaken Podcast, we've got lots of content on there. If you go to YouTube, you'll be able to see a lot of our live shows that we did a few years back. But if you go to www.lifeportoutintl.org, there's also tons of free content, interviews uh, for you to glean from, learn from, receive. And so you can go ahead to the website, you can go on iTunes. Um, If you're enjoying the podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe and review it on there. But I really want to um, honor my guest time here today, and I want to have him on because we got a lot of content and a lot of different arenas and avenues that we can go down here. But his name is Dr. Michael Heiser, and he's the author of several books. I'll only mention a few here, but Reversing Hermann, The Unseen Realm, Supernatural. Um, he's got a book called Angels and also a book coming out here in the in the recent and in, in the in the in the future here and in a, actually probably a few weeks from now from the release of this uh, podcast called Demons. And so he has an MA and a PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Semitic languages from the University of Wisconsin, Madison. His education also includes an MA in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania. He is a handful of PhDs in the world that uh, can translate seven extinct languages among biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek, Aramaic, and many more. He's also the host of the Naked Bible podcast and the executive director of the Awakened School of Theology and Ministry. I heard a lot about Dr. Michael Heiser from a close friend of mine Sean Tabbit, as well as Josh from Remnant Radio, and a buddy of mine who is really gleaning a lot of um, amazing revelation from the Naked Bible podcast, and so it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Um, welcome, doc, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely, and just like I was telling you before we got on the show here today, a bunch of my buddies and close friends and colleagues are telling me mm-hmm. about your books, and I got a hold of the Unseen Realm first because I was told that is a good start in terms of diving into a lot of your um, theological books and content, and so I brought it to um, Belize for my anniversary. It's about a four hundred and something page book, right? <laughs> I think so, and yeah. I I couldn't put it down. I read through it in about five days, maybe seven at most, and so. Me and my wife were talking about the book of Enoch and, and Nephilim and and Jesus and the Old Testament <laughs> and everything on our anniversary. And so it was very eventful. Yeah, <laughs> the, thank the you perfect
1: for that. anniversary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there was some romance definitely mixed in with some theological discourse. And so it was good. It was good. It was really good. But um, I appreciate you coming on. The book Unseen Realm truly has revolutionized the way I see the Bible. And I really know that that's your heart in terms of... You know why you wrote the book um you really want to open people's eyes to the deeper narrative in scripture and I think I want to open up with just an overall view of I know that so many people in you know in in churches today and I went to Bible school 3 years and so I dove into the Bible but at the same time you know we view it from our own cultural lens and there were so many yeah. scriptures that did not make sense to me for so many years but you almost just gloss over it and you're like all right well let's just move on to the next scripture cuz cuz this one's not making sense here or you stick with the gospels or the things that you could really glean from and learn from and so but you really talk about viewing the scriptures from an ancient jewish perspective i would love to hear about that before we before we dive into the content
1: yeah i mean i i am prone to say uh, in interviews or classes that The goal of Unseen Realm, there there are several goals, but one of the big ones, and really the podcast as well, Naked Bible Podcast, is I want the Israelite, you know, living in your head when you read the Old Testament, and I want the first century Jew living in your head when you read the New Testament. Um, You know, we, we talk a lot about interpreting the Bible in context. And typically what that means for the, you know, the average person in the pew, uh, even even the person who really wants to get into Bible study, uh, it means, well, I need to look at the, the verses that come a little bit before the one I'm looking at and a little bit after, and that's context. Or I might, you know, read a study Bible note about archaeology and discover, hey, you know, they, they plowed their fields back in the antiquity, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like these the, the sort of, you know, they they can have their importance, but they're, there's a lot of – they're peripheral, you know, really, when it comes right down to it. What, what you really need for context is worldview. And mm-hmm. so we have to sort of make the jump, and I had to make it. You know, I had my own, um, you know, awakening or just provocation, you know, providential provocation when I was in grad school in a doctoral program. But we have to realize that, you know – we can talk about interpreting the Bible in context all we want, but the, we have to realize that the right context for interpreting the Bible is nothing modern. So it's not <laughs> yeah. the Reformation, it's mm-hmm. not the Puritans, it's not evangelicalism, it's not Catholicism, it's not you know, a, a Pentecostal tra- tradition. It's no tradition at all that we're familiar with, they're all post-biblical. Even the church fathers, you know, the first few centuries after the, after the apostolic era, they're, they're hundreds of years removed from the New Testament. They're over a thousand years removed from the Old Testament. So none of these contexts are the context of the original writer, the people that God, you know, prompted and inspired to produce what we call the Bible, or their original readers and hearers. Yeah. Okay. None of it—it's it, a total mismatch, and and so until we are able to think like those people thought. Well, sure. There's going to be a lot in the Bible that just looks like it, it's crazy talk, or it, it it doesn't make any sense, or it's it's just totally foreign. We we don't even know where to begin uh thinking about it. So what I'm trying to do at unseen realm it is not a theory of everything. You know, it's not you know read this and you'll understand everything in the Bible. But what I you know, I'm not going to overclaim, but what I can claim rightly is that if you read the book, you will never read your Bible the same way again. You will read the Bible again for the first time. I mean, these things sound like cliches, but I'm actually serious about it. I, I can give you the framework um, for understanding the Bible. You know, really, and what I mean by that is the meta narrative of Scripture, which constantly, from Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of how you know God what God wants, you know, what God wants for humankind, uh, and also the intersection of the human world with the supernatural world, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. That I can give you. I can give you the framework. You know, we have a lot of people in churches who have a lot of data points about the Bible in their head, but they have nothing to hang them on. Yeah. They have no framework into which they fit. And, and if you don't have that, you don't see the interconnectivity of Scripture, and, and you can't read it like the original writers and readers read it. You're, you're not thinking their thoughts after them. What you're doing is you're having it filtered to you through some modern tradition. And that's only going to get you a little distance down the road. And, and just like you described, there's going to be a lot of things you write in the Bible that, what in the world is that talking about? Why is, it, why is that there? They couldn't really have thought that, did they? You know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of that. In the Bible, whether we like to admit it or not, the Bible is not a book written for children. It's 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 not a an easy read. There, the core truths can be understood by children for sure, but the the Bible itself re- requires again a, a a certain worldview, a certain you know ability to look at it as they looked at it, and that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that sucked me in too is the fact that you went from literally the Garden of Eden. Through the entire narrative of, of of scripture, you know, in the Old Testament, into the days of Jesus, and you know, the apostles, yep. into the Book of Revelation, it's like I I couldn't stop reading because you were just going through the whole story of scripture from, yep. from from beginning to end, just showing the supernatural aspect and and Jesus in the Old Testament and how Jesus was reversing what took place, you know, in the Old Testament yep. scriptures, and it was just all weaved together perfectly, and um, that was that, that's if, you know. And-
1: I mean, I I want people to realize that, you know, you don't need a graduate degree to do this. Um, I'm giving you the start. I I do have graduate degrees and I'm a scholar and so on and so forth. So I view my role as to help you get started. But what this really is, is dot connecting. But, But to be able to connect dots, you have to know where the dots are and you have to realize that, okay, you know, these are breadcrumb trails that I need to follow. I, I can't view things in isolation. This particular breadcrumb is going to mean something if I look at it, you know, the way an ancient person would look at it, because then I'll be able to see how it connects to something else. And and so that that takes time and effort. But I want your listeners to know you you can do this. I mean, you really can. And for those who aren't used to reading books with footnotes, I mean, you had some Bible training. So Unseen Realm was a good place for you to start. But for those who who don't have that, uh, I wrote a book called Supernatural, which is a distillation of the content of Unseen Realm. It has all the footnotes taken out and all the the academic sort of approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just the core ideas. uh, So for for those who might feel intimidated by a book with footnotes and it gets supernatural, you're going to get, the same sort of eye-opening experience out of that
0: too. Yeah, I bought a few copies of the Supernatural and passed them out to some friends because if you look at the Unseen Realm next to the Supernatural, it's it's a lot smaller, but it dives into the main content. Yeah, and so I, I yep. definitely—that's
1: by design.
0: Oh, I, I, absolutely. And so one one scripture that you used as a framework um, for this book that you brought up in the very beginning, and it keeps coming back throughout the entire book, is Psalm eighty-two, and this kind of moment of awakening that you had with that scripture. Uh, I would love to hear about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I say a little bit about this at the beginning of the book, you know, so people understand that, you know, when I say things like, you're never going to read your Bible the same way again, I'm serious because this is what happened to me. And I I was not a newbie. I mean, there I am. I'm a doctoral student in, in a Hebrew studies program. You know, I've already got two master's degrees. I've taught Bible on the undergraduate level for five years. I mean, this is I'm not just stepping into this. And you know, I relate a conversation that I had in in church a few minutes before church started with a friend I had in the Hebrew department. And as I say, you know, in the book, I, I don't remember what the conversation was about, but I'll never forget the way it ended. You know, he he happened to have his Hebrew Bible with him, and whatever we were talking about, this was relevant. He handed it to me and said, You need to read Psalm 82. In Hebrew, and so I I, I took it. I mean, it's not difficult. There's nothing fancy about it. The first, you know, line, you know, Elohim Nitzav Baadat L. You know, God, Elohim, capital G, and we know it's capital G because Nitzav is a singular participle. So God, big G, has taken his place in the divine council or taken his stand in the divine council. And then the next line of the very same verse is. In the midst of the Elohim, you know, in the midst of the gods, it has to be plural because you can't be in the midst of more than one, or you can't be in the midst of one, so it has to be a group. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. And you say, well, that's the Trinity. No, it's not the Trinity, because if you keep reading the psalm, God is excoriating the other gods, the other Elohim, for their corruption and their wickedness. Yeah, this is not the Trinity. It's very obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get down to verse 6, and he says, God is the speaker. He said, you know, to the group, he said, you, plural again, are Elohim. All of you, sons of the Most High, plural. Nevertheless, you're going to die like men, you know, because of what you've done here. And then the the psalm ends with the psalmist saying, "Arise, you know, God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Well, who? You know, I thought he already had that. You know, it, so there's lots of questions here, but I looked at the first verse there in church, and I thought, my, the first thought that popped into my head was, well, that looks like a pantheon. Sure. You know, God among the gods, you know, like, like ancient Greece or something. And then, I, I, you know, it hit me like, how in the world could I have not seen that before? I mean, I, I'm pretty far down the road to becoming a professor here and a biblical scholar. and I have never seen that. And of course, the guy who told me I needed to read it had seen it, <laughs> you know. And and I don't remember anything about the sermon. I have no idea what went on at church yeah, that yeah. day. But <laughs> it's like it's like I I got it. I mean, this is this is mind bending here, you know, because of you know Judeo Christian tradition about monotheism. Like, what in the world is going on here? How do, how do I handle this? But again, providentially, fortunately, I I had another thought, and that was, I bet Jesus knew this passage. I bet Paul knew it. You know, and, and somehow they they produced a theology that I'm familiar with, you know, Trinity, you know, one one unique, you know, God and, and three persons and you know and, and deity of Christ. I mean all these things are in, are obvious in the New Testament, but some of they knew Psalm 82. How in the world does this work? And and it became my it was a turning point for me because it became initially an academic obsession. And eventually it wound up being part of my dissertation and, and you know what would become unseen realm was born out of that. And, you know, but, but I, 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 had to wrestle with it. And eventually I had to, I, I had the realization that, you know, what this is going to take is you're going to have to just set aside the filters that you have in your head. You're going to have to set aside the way you've been taught to read the Bible, and try to try to be the ancient person and think like they do, you know, think like Paul did, think like Jesus did, you know, as as God become man in the first century. You know, you, this is this is a bridge you have to cross.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, are you willing to do that? And and I did. It it, it unlocked Scripture like nothing. I had ever experienced before. And it has become and and, and still is just a just a fascination. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: How it all connects and and what it means and and how it adds layers of richness to to ideas that we we are we do hold correctly, but we sometimes we don't know why or we have really bad arguments for why we do, and and we miss the fullness of, of what is actually in scripture.
0: Yeah. And then you go through and you think of all the terms and the the names that we have for God, you know, the most high God. And we always reference him as the God of gods, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the apostle Paul talking about principalities and powers and Satan being the God of this age and all these different, and then, you know, we just use these terms. All
1: these things have histories. Yep. They all have histories that are deeply entrenched in the old Testament.
0: Oh, absolutely. And we, and we say them because it's in the, it's in our, you know, preachings and, you know, and worship songs and we, and we don't think about where they come from, but especially when you brought up Psalm 82 and you were talking about the divine council, you dove deeply into the divine council, how the Lord speaks among um and makes judgments around yep. the divine council. That was a totally new concept for me, and I went to Bible school for three well, years. So for
1: your, yeah, for your listeners, it's like okay, here, here's
0: a, a, a quick entry point into the issue.
1: When you run across, and you're going to run across it a dozen times at least, when the when the Bible refers to the God of the Bible as the God of all gods, does it really mean what it says? Yeah. You know, and you you walk into the average church and say, "Well, yeah, the gods are idols. Of course, God's better than idols." Well, that's wonderful, but that doesn't work either in Psalm eighty-two or especially Psalm eighty-nine, where you have the same Elohim, plural Elohim, sons of God, sons of the Most High, in a council, and it's in the heavens, it's in the skies. Yep. Okay, there are no idols in the, in heaven. Okay, there's no idols in the skies. And you also read in evangelical commentaries that all oh, the gods here in Psalm eighty two are just men, they're just people. Well, the last time I checked, we don't have a bunch of people, Jewish elders or otherwise, ruling from the skies. You know yeah. it, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. And then when you discover other divine council passages like first Kings twenty-two, nineteen through twenty-three, where they're in a council and they're called spirits, or Daniel seven, where the court you know sits to render judgment on the four beasts in Daniel seven. I mean, you you run into these passages where the idol idol explanation makes zero sense, the human explanation makes zero sense. And, you know, you you just have to come to grips with what the text actually says. And so, yeah, I I can walk into a church and ask that question. And a lot of people will, if if you say, well, it actually means that God is superior in, in, in every way. Yes. To other entities mm-hmm. that the script that the Bible actually calls gods, they would look at you like you got two heads, or, or like you're you're spouting heresy. It's like, look, it, it, it's your I didn't write the Bible. It's your Bible. It's right there, you know. But does it mean what it says? And even that simple question sort of creates a crisis for a lot of people because we're just not used to thinking through the whole topic the way an ancient Israelite would have thought through.
0: Yeah, and you layer in your first few chapters, you know, you talk where we're just, just talking about the divine counsel and all those scriptures that you mentioned in Daniel and Kings, where it was just when I read it, it just especially within the context, you know, of what you were talking about in Psalm 82 and how you laid that foundation, it was just it opened my eyes and it was so all intriguing. All of
1: a sudden it makes sense.
0: <laughs> all of a sudden it makes sense. Instead of being like, Okay, well, I don't understand that. Moving on, you know, next story, next scripture. You know, but you talk about God's invisible yep. family and image bearers, and then also the Garden of Eden, how He made us yep. His His natural people. You know, His 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 image bearers on Earth. And I'd love to because I feel like divine counsel for a lot of the people who are watching, uh, uh, listening right now, they are thinking to themselves. I, I want to hear a little bit more about this divine counsel. And how does this? How does this yeah. make sense?
1: Well, for it, divine counsel is yes, it's a scriptural term. Psalm eighty two one, Psalm eighty nine five through eight, and and other passages. You know, it's a scriptural term, but what it really means is, is God among His heavenly hosts, you know, the, the members of the heavenly host, And that's a term we're, we're more familiar with, you know. It's, yes. Uh, it, it just connects a little bit more. And, and so the natural question is, well, why does God need a council? And of course the answer is, He doesn't. You know, you, you, can, you can get clarity on the question and the answer if you ask the question, why does God need the church? He doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay, God could just as well come down here and decide who's saved and who's lost and call it a day. Why does God need you? He doesn't. He's not dependent on you. He's not dependent on the church. He's not dependent on the members of his heavenly host. He's dependent on nothing and no one. But what God likes to do is create beings who are like him. Okay, this we're back to the Genesis one twenty six language, which is not the Trinity. And you, you you get that's the common teaching. But if you go over to Genesis eleven, it doesn't work there because the Lord is goes down and then he calls down, he says, Let's let let us, you know, go down. Well, if it's the Trinity, the other members of the Trinity are already down there. Okay? So that it doesn't work there. Plus he doesn't have to announce to them anything because they're co eternal and co omniscient.
0: Yeah, I've always heard I've always heard, heard it about the Trinity to. too. I've heard the same thing. Like uh, that's right.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you really think about what you're reading, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Sure. You know, but we, def- we default to this position. So, you know, God likes to create beings, whether it's in the spiritual world or the, the earthly world, the terrestrial world, who are like him. You know, it's this image concept, which is, you know, to, to cut to the chase. so I go through this in detail in Unseen Realm. The image of God is not a thing or quality given to us or to the members of the heavenly host. You know, it, it's rather a status. It means representative. It's representation. If you think of the image as a verb, you have the idea we are we are created to image God. You know, and that, what that means is we are created to be His proxies on earth, to, to be Him, as it were, working with Him as partners yes. and as family members. You know, we have son language, you know, children of God language, we have this notion of, of participating because in Daniel 4, you know, the, 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 this is by decree of the watchers, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's punishment when he goes insane for a while. It's also a decree of the Most High in the same chapter. You know, First Kings 29, God says, It's time for Ahab to die. How should we do that? And one spirit comes up with an idea, and God says, Yeah, that'll work. I know Ahab, trust me. You know, he, he's going to fall for this. <laughs> it's not that God is looking for information, that like he doesn't know what to do, he's at a loss. No, he wants them. To jump in and participate.
2: Hmm. Same
1: thing in Daniel seven. God doesn't need a council to decide what's going to happen to the four beasts, but He lets them participate. This is the pattern from the very beginning. I'm going to create beings like myself. They're going to have a unique status in creation. They're going to be my imagers. Now, to do the job that I want, to subdue the earth and you know be fruitful and multiply all that stuff. I'm going to share my attributes with them so that they're equipped to do the imaging task. And the reason it's plural in Genesis 1, let us create humanity in our image, and then it switches back to singular when humans are actually created in the very next verse, is the language is designed to alert us that, hey, there's some relationship between God and humans and the heavenly host. What might that be? Well, the answer is we're all imagers. We have the same creator. He shares the same attributes with us, and we are to we are to be partners with him, us in our world and them in the spiritual world. And we see a spiritual bureaucracy, you know, later on in Scripture. We see the church, okay, and in Israel, you know, before it in the Old Testament, participating with God, you know, to spread the goodness of God throughout the earth, to to do things that God wants done, to work the plan of the kingdom. Okay, this is what it means, but it starts in Genesis. And, and the plurals are there to, to, to give us the teaching, to give us the notion that, mm-hmm. look, what's happening here on earth is the same thing that God wants to happen in heaven, as in heaven, so on earth. There's this symbiotic relationship. And these two sides of reality, these two spheres of reality, are intrinsically connected to the rest of the Bible. When there's rebellion in the supernatural realm, it has a great impact on the human realm. You know, when there's transgression between realms, it has a huge impact on, on what's happening, you know, in, in, on earth and, and in heaven. So this is why you get this language, and, and we get the story as it's told. And another thing, you know, I don't want to ramble here too much, but no, if cute. you ask the average Christian, why is the world a mess? Well, it's the fall. If you ask the same question to an Israelite or a first-century Jew, that is not the answer you would get. The answer we get is well, there's actually three reasons why the world is <laughs> such a mess. Yeah. The fall is the first one, but there's two others. There's the Genesis six one through four incident, and then there's what happened at Babel, where God punishes humanity by dividing up the nations and assigning them to lesser Elohim. It's Deuteronomy thirty two eight, which you know we all know the Babel story, but we never we somehow. I was was a PhD student before I ran into Deuteronomy thirty two eight. You know, reading with with the Dead Sea Scrolls, like my ESV study Bible told me to do. Okay, but it's like I never did it. I never thought about it. And it's like God assigns the nations to lesser Elohim who become corrupt, and they're the corrupt ones in Psalm 82. It goes haywire, why? Because they have freedom just like humans do because God shared his attributes with them. Because what he wanted was images. He wanted kids and partners in both realms. But he knows that if he does this, you know, God has foreknowledge. He knows this is going to happen. He knows what, you know, he knows that, that we, have, we have his attributes. We, we, you know, we, we share them in, in lesser degrees than he has, them, but we share them. But we lack something. We lack his perfect nature. We lack his perfection. You can't yeah. share perfection. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> <You Yeah. laughs> so, so he knows that there's going to be rebellion. He knows that there's going to be failure. And this is why we have evil. This is why we have supernatural and human rebellion and evil in the world. It's because of this decision that God made. And we can be mad at God for that, or we can realize, we can awaken to the fact that, you know what, you know what this says? This says that in God's head, as it were, he would rather have a world that had this risk with it, and and would result in rebellion and evil. He would rather have that world, even though it causes suffering, and God is grieved by it. He sees all of it. We think we're grieved more than God. Well, we only see a fraction, you know, of what goes on. Mm -hmm. God sees everything, but he would rather have that world than not have us at all. That is the takeaway thought from, from, again, this worldview. But, but all of these things somehow escape us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when, when we're thinking about Scripture or when we hear it in church, and it, it's right there in the text, but we somehow don't see it. And the reason we don't see it is not because we're dumb, okay? People, you know, the, I, 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 I believe that people in the pew are routinely underestimated, both in terms of their appetite for content and their aptitude for it. You know, what, what we lack is not intelligence. What we lack is we lack the worldview true. of the writers and the original readers. That's what's missing. That is the matrix that needs to be built, okay, for us. And, and again, what I'm trying to do in Unseen Realm and these other books and the podcast is build it out, you know, so that you can become a, a, a better reader of, of the story of Scripture.
0: Yes, and, and this is the Lord's heart. And I believe that's why the hundreds of thousands of copies are going all over the world because God wants to open up our eyes to these very subjects. He wants to give us this proper framework and give us this understanding. We're going to need them. Absolutely.
1: You know, and, and look, and I'm not saying that because it's Mike's book. All right. The dirty little secret of Unseen Realm is that Mike never had an original thought. Okay? Everything in the book is footnoted. You know, I have a I have a companion website with more sources. I have a personal bibliography of almost 7,000 sources. I am not hurting for data, okay? But, but I, don't, I don't have an original thought. I take, I take high-level scholarship about Scripture, and I make it decipherable to people, specifically with an eye toward the, the meta-narrative. That's what, that's what Mike does. But the reason it's important is because—and and I'll put the Bible Project into this. You know, I was a consultant on the Bible Projects, you know, videos on the supernatural world and Elohim and all this kind of stuff. They're, I actually discovered this by watching their videos. It's like, you know, Mike, you're actually doing the same kind of thing that they're doing, but they're just doing it visually. And they do a tremendous job. Yeah. And that is, we focus on the meta narrative. This is, this is denominational agnostic. It doesn't matter what your denomination is. If you focus on the meta narrative, you will understand Scripture far better and it will build unity. Okay, among the people who actually care about biblical theology, and we're going to need that down the road. We're just going to need a, to to be single-minded, at least in this respect, the meta narrative of Scripture: what God wants, what the gospel is, what it is not, and 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 to be able to, you know, think of, you know, be of one mind at least to that extent, and appreciate the fact that we're all here to. Do the imaging task. We're all here to be like Jesus. We're all here to, to carry out the Great Commission, which is ultimately what spiritual warfare is. If you want to know what spiritual warfare is, ask yourself, what do the powers fear? Okay, they don't fear you going in, into a room and shouting at them. Okay, what they <laughs> fear is the Great Commission. Why? That's because right. Paul linked the fullness of the Gentiles, the regathering of the nations disinherited at Babel and assigned to these lesser gods— who became corrupt in their own rebellion, He that they fear the regathering of people from all the nations, the healing of Babel, because that will be the catalyst to the reawakening of Israel. And then the end will come. Okay, that is what they fear. So Jesus was not clueless or mistaken when he ascended and said, you know, gave us the Great Commission, which by the way is verses 18 through 20 in Matthew 28, not 19 and 20. 18 needs to be looped in there because the first one says he has authority over all the nations. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 82, verse 8. Okay, through the resurrection and the ascension. You know, so all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go and make disciples of all nations. You know, the nations are the focus. And then in Acts, okay, in Acts, it's like, Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. I mean, it's a Mm -hmm. coherent plan. And that is what they fear. And so, if you, you know, I often get the question well, do they think they can win? Do the principalities and powers think they can win? Well, it depends how you define winning. If you define, oh, we're going to beat God and and kill off God, well, they're not idiots, okay? They know that that is not going to happen. But if you define Mm -hmm. winning as distracting the church and keeping them from the Great Commission, the the ultimate imaging project, to basically, you know, get God, you know, to to move things full circle back to Eden, which is how Revelation ends with a global Eden, okay? If if they can forestall that, then they extend their own existence. They extend their own warfare. So they're actually doing a decent job of that. (laughs) (laughs) So it just depends how you define things. But this is the world, again, we're talking worldview, this is the worldview that Scripture presents us, and we are smack dab in the middle of it. I, I mean, honestly, we're, 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 we're the cog in the whole thing, because what was lost, you know, in, you know, it was Eden, both in terms of the supernatural, wholeness, you know, we have a rebel at the beginning in Eden, and human wholeness, you know, the Adam and Eve, you know, rebellion. You know, what, what happened in Eden, which is directly involving us, is the focus of everything, yes. you know, for, for God's plan for humanity. And this is the story that Scripture tries to present to us. But instead, we read it like a textbook, we break it up into little pieces, we don't have the worldview that we need. And it's no wonder that we're mystified at 90% of our Bible, like, I have no idea what's going on <laughs> or why it's even here.
0: Your book, Reversing Hermon, was um, also huge for me because you talk about Genesis 6. There's only a few verses there that talk about the corruption that took place in the Nephilim, and there's so many strange theologies and viewpoints and interpretations yeah. on the Nephilim and, and what happened there, and then also the Tower of Babel. It's like the short story, and it's like, what, what in the world were they doing and 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 how did this even? You know, and there's 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 just so many questions, you know, question marks around these subjects. And I know that the Bible, especially in Genesis six, doesn't really share, you know, a whole lot of information on how these things transpired. But you also quote a lot of, um, you know, books like you know the Book of Enoch. But when I was in Bible school, the Book of Enoch was almost like taboo you know it was, it was mystical it's like don't yeah. don't read that that's not the bible you know <laughs> but then but then you have like well, it's, first it's, peter no. and jude quoting from the book of enoch okay. and it's like well the jews back then obviously weren't afraid of that book the apostles right. that we glean from weren't don't afraid.
1: read don't read this book that the new testament writers read yeah you know? <laughs> yeah yeah so it, you know it, it's not enoch isn't scripture but like whoever said that to be important, a book had to be in the Bible? I mean, whoever came up with that rule?
2: Yeah. You know, it, uh-huh.
1: it, it's nonsense. And what we don't realize, you know, Enoch gets picked on because, you know, the early church had a had a debate, you know, uh, you know about whether Enoch, you know, should be considered canonical or not. So that, that's why it draws attention because the, the, the discussion happened. But what people don't realize is that the Old Testament quotes from you know, non-biblical pagan stuff all the time. You know, quotes from the Baal Cycle, it quotes from Anuma Elish, you know, it, it alludes to just tons of these texts. And, and why do they do that? Because the biblical writers were literate. They read books. And there's a thought for you. Biblical writers read books.
2: Wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, they, they read books, and they knew that the content of those books was floating around in the heads of, lot of, their, of lots of their readers. And so to connect with those readers and disabuse those readers of bad theology, or just to poke the other side in the eye from time to time, (laughs) they will imbibe in that material and then do their own theology with it. They will argue against the worldview of the Mesopotamians or the Canaanites or the Egyptians or whatever. And this is how they do it. It's a strategy. It's a theological strategy for them. And, And that, you know, Enoch, is, is is a little bit of the same. You know, what you have, you're going back to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is the writers don't spell everything out because they assume their audience knows what what the context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is. You say, well, well how would they know that? Well, if you were literate, you would know that the backstory for Genesis 6, 1 through 4, in every point, is a Mesopotamian story about, you know, there the... the the sons of God figures, the divine beings, are called the Upkalu. After the flood, they are not one hundred percent divine. They are they are quote unquote of human descent. You can actually see this in, in the in the clay tablets. You know they 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 are giants. You know they, they teach humanity awful things to corrupt them. You know it, it, that's what you have in Genesis six one through five. We'll look at verse five into this. And, but you know, good readers of scripture will will have asked themselves, hey. You know, Genesis 6, 5, where it says that, you know, humanity was totally wicked. Every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. What does that have to do with the first four verses? This weird sons of God Nephilim thing. Like, what's the connection? Why are the first four verses there? They look like they don't even belong there. I mean, how do they go with verse 5? Well, if you know the backstory... It fits perfectly, and and readers in the New Testament era knew the backstory. How do we know that? We know that from books like Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls, the book the Book of the Giants, specifically. It actually you know quotes and includes you know figures like Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was one of the Op-Kalo. he He's called Lord of the Apkalu. He also happens to be a giant. I mean, does this picture look familiar? Mm. You know, they they knew this material, and when when Enoch gets written. It's a commentary on both the bad guys and their context, the Mesopotamian apkallu story, and it's a commentary on Genesis 6:1 through 4, the corrective, the theological corrective story. But they assume, and they can assume, that their readers just know all that. We don't, you know. And to be honest with you, you know, to be blunt about it, it you know, if you go to a commentary on Genesis. I have found two commentaries, and I own lots of books. Okay, I work for a software <laughs> company. I sure. basically got everything free. I mean, I, I have all this stuff. There are two commentaries I know of that mention they don't they don't discuss. They mention the up collar, just like the word. One sentence.
2: Yeah.
1: The material that's actually the background for Genesis six one through four has only been collected and discussed since two thousand and ten. So by definition, if you have a Genesis commentary written before 2010 that doesn't get into this, it is by definition obsolete. It is not interpreting Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in its own original context. It doesn't have the material. So this is what I try to do in reversing You know, ferret that stuff out. And, you know, demons is going to have a little bit more of it. You know, because Genesis 6 is the second of three rebellions, but there's a lot going on here. But you can get to it. Again, my I view my role in all this is I don't need to think original thoughts. What I need to do is I need to sift material and make it readable and decipherable for people, and connect dots for them and get them started down the road. That is, if I have a ministry, that's it. You know, that, that's the thing that sort of drives the bus for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in Genesis 6, we're talking about, well, Enoch, you know, gives a lot of explanation here on what these, uh, on, on this rebellion and how.
1: Oh, he's tracking on, yep, he's tracking on all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, what, why is it, you mentioned Peter and Jude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's one. You read through Peter and Jude, in you know, 2 Peter 2, where the angels, plural, that sinned, are sent yes. to, you know, Hades or hell. The, the Greek word is Tartara. They're sent to Tartarus, which is really an important clue. But but let's just back up a little bit. Angels, plural, that sinned. Okay, where in the Old Testament do we have angels, plural, you know, supernatural beings, plural, sinning? And a lot of people in church would say, well, that's when Satan took a, you know, he rebelled and took a third of the angels with him. Well, guess what? There isn't a single passage in the entire Bible that says that.
0: Exactly, And that frustrated me. The only time me. you even get the oh, word... Oh, man. I
1: know. It, it's made up. Okay, yeah. it, It's yeah. a tradition, really. It's paradise lost from the Puritans or something like that. You yeah. Know? But there's not a single Bible passage that says it. In fact, if you, if you search your Bible, like, you know, just do it with a concordance or a software program, for the words three or third and the word angel, they only appear together one time, one place. And that's Revelation 12. And if you read that, the war in heaven there is in association with not creation, but the birth of the Messiah. I would suggest to you that the birth of the Messiah happened after creation, okay? There is no primeval rebellion of a third of the angels and Satan. And so Peter must be referring to something else. And there's only one candidate, and that's Genesis 6one through 4. And we know that's what he's thinking of because he, he uses the verb tartarau They they get sent t- to Tartars. Well, what what's the big deal with that, Mike? That is the verb, and that is the place where the Greek, the secular, you know, Greco-Roman version of this story puts them. Okay, it's another word for abyss. But that's the story of the Titans. Okay, the, the giants and the you know, sons of God and you know, divine beings and the cohabitate. It's their version of the story, and that mm-hmm. is the term they use. So Peter and Jude are reading this stuff. They, they, they're familiar with it. Enoch is, is just filled with it. You know, Jude's going to quote Enoch in another passage as well. But, and so you have to ask yourself the question. Just let's say you don't know anything about Enoch. You don't know anything about Mesopotamian Apcalo. You don't know any of this stuff. You look at that and you go, okay, if they're referring, if Peter's referring back to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, because that's the only plural angels that sin story we have in the Old Testament. If I go back and read that story, it doesn't say anything about them being put in chains of gloomy darkness or sent to the abyss or any of that. What in the world? Where is Peter getting that? He's not getting that part of the story from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Well, you know where he's getting it? He's getting it from Enoch. And you know where Enoch's getting it from? Enoch's getting it from his knowledge, you know, that whoever wrote that book, his knowledge of the Mesopotamian backstory. Because in the Mesopotamian story, they get sent to the abyss. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, there's a, there's a chain of understanding here of writers having knowledge of texts in their head. And they don't spell every element of it out in what they write because they assume their audience is familiar with the material. You know, the Book of Enoch and, and books like it, like Jubilees and some of these others, they were widely read in the early Christian you know, era. They, they, they predate the New Testament by a couple centuries they were well-known, widely read. And so Peter doesn't have to stop and add a footnote. Okay, now, you know, let me just spell all this out for you here. I'm using angels who sin, that I mean this, 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 and this. He doesn't need to do that. Because he, he presumes his audience knows the story and its backdrop.
0: They know the elements. Absolutely. But we don't. Absolutely. We don't. Yeah, yeah. And that's, what the, the, you know, that's why this is so important. And the one, I would love to, you know, kind of, and this conversation with going into you know where it talks about you know Mount Hermon and kind of where this rebellion yeah. took place and i just love the fact that in your book the unseen realm you dive into the gospels and even how the the the, the transfiguration of jesus is a blatant declaration of him taking back the nations and reversing this this uh, yeah. rebellion i just love that it's not just the garden of eden you know that jesus died and came you know he 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 walked the earth you know, he, he died, you know, he rose again, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not just the garden of Eden, but it's, it's the corruption that took place that Jesus is reversing. And it just brings me so much life to see in the gospels, Jesus making these declarations, yeah. everything he's doing is so specific. It's so intentional it's to, to reverse it. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's so life giving. And well, I would love to just mean, end this conversation it, with that.
1: Sure. Think of it this way. So if, if you have a worldview you know, let's say you're a first-century Jew, and again, you think the world is messed up and we've got human and supernatural evil and corruption of humanity. Would you think the reason for that is threefold? The fall, Genesis 6, and then what happens at Babel. You assume, rightly so, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be the cure for all three. Not just one, yeah. but all mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm so the, the the first rebellion results in estrangement from God and and the loss of immortality. It brings death, just like Romans five you know says so the Messiah has to cure the death problem, and of course Jesus does that through the resurrection and it, it also explains why Jesus you know had had to die because you can 't have a resurrection without a death mm-hmm. so he cures the death problem the the Genesis 6 you know, issue, the, the issue really isn't the, the, the freaky Sons of God Nephilim thing. The issue in, in the backstory, the most important part of it, is that these supernatural beings corrupted humanity through teaching them forbidden knowledge. It, it basically proliferates depravity. And that's how, you know, Jews of the Second Temple period, the intertestamental period, looked at it. Well, when Jesus ascends back And he told the disciples, this is going to happen. I have to go back to the Father. Why? So that the Spirit can come. And the Spirit is, but is not Jesus. The Spirit, you know, a couple times, you know, the Lord is, you know, the Spirit is called, you know, Jesus. They're equated. Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of God, the Lord is the Spirit, you know, all this kind of stuff. Where two or three are gathered, I'm in their midst. You know, well, how can you do that? Well, I I can do that because I'm also the Holy Spirit. We have this Trinity thing working here. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Okay? So, his death and resurrection and ascension are key to curing the second problem, and of course, the third problem is related to the Great Commission, the you know calling the you know God's people back from all the nations, you know seeding them. This is what Pentecost does; it seeds the, the the truth all over the known world, and then Paul you know works the plan to reverse the nations, and, and I, I get into the specifics of how this works, you know, in, in unseen realm. So, you know, you get that. And and there's an intentionality to it. So when Jesus shows up, I would suggest to people that you you pay attention to what he does in the places where he does it and what he says. And one of these, as you mentioned, is is connected to Mount Hermon. You say, well, what's Mount Hermon? Hermon is, according to to Enoch, the place, and and actually the Mesopotamian stuff traverses into here too, because the the same mountain was viewed as the, the dwelling of the gods. Enoch is the or Hermod is the place where the, the watchers, that's his Enoch's favorite term for the sons of God of Genesis six, where they descend and make it, you know, they declare an oath among themselves to corrupt humanity. That's the place where they, they make their oath, they swear their oath and descend. Mm-hmm. And so in the gospel story, you know, you have the story of Caesarea Philippi upon this rock I will build my church. I get into that, you know, in in Unseen Realm, and how that is basically a Picking a fight with Satan. But then it says, (laughs) the narrative says, you know, Caesarea Philippi is is right at the foot of Mount Hermon. And and the Gospels actually say, you know, a few days later they went up into the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And this is where the transfiguration happens. Yeah. So I'm not saying, no, you know, the, the imagery there doesn't have anything to do with the exodus out of Egypt and so on and so forth. I think it does. But you have to also realize that why did Jesus pick this place? To do this thing. Okay, because just as the Exodus was the defeat of the gods of Egypt, Exodus 12, this night, the Passover, I will have a victory over the gods of Egypt, to deliverance from chaos. So the transfiguration is Jesus is saying, Look, I'm here. And he, he unveils his glory on Mount Hermon as if to say, I'm here, fellas, do something about it. He's picking a fight. Absolutely. You know, he, he's, he's letting them all know what's going on here. Awesome. And it says, after the transfiguration, then they they go back to Jerusalem, and it says Jesus began to teach his disciples that he needed to go back to Jerusalem and die. <laughs> and they freak out. Like, you know, we hey, we just poked Satan in the eye, we just poked <laughs> the watchers in the eye, and now, we, now you're going to die? Like, yeah, what, yeah. That's insane, you know? And, and that's where we get the Peter, you know, not so, Lord, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, we... A week later, he's, we have the, the triumphal entry, and a week after that, he's dead. You know, so mission accomplished. He has to provoke the fight. And I take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6, you know, seriously, where had the rulers of this world known, and again, that's terminology that's used for supernatural beings in the Gospels and elsewhere, had they known what the, the, the effect would have been of the crucifixion, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory, because that is the trigger event and Jesus has to provoke it. You know, there, there are different chronological reasons why. But he provokes this event because this is the thing that is needed to reverse all three problems. You've got to have a resurrection. You can't have it without a death. You can't have the sending of the Spirit without the ascension after the resurrection. And you can't reclaim the nations unless you see it at the right hand of the Father and all authority is given to you in heaven and on earth. You must do this. Okay, this, is, this is the trigger event to cure all three problems. But, it, you know, just, just think of, of what we just talked about. Your listeners know these stories. There's nothing new in terms of the story. They've oh, heard of absolutely. the Transfiguration. They've, mm-hmm. they've heard of Upon This Rock. You know, they, but, but there's no framework for them. There's nothing that ties them together in their heads. If, you, if you've strongly suspected, as a believer, and I'm speaking to your audience now, if you've strongly suspected as a believer that, you know, there, there's got to be more to the Bible than than this, you know, like than what I know, like, like the gospel every week, Sunday school, you know, just at like Sunday school endlessly, the same stories, there's, there's got to be more to it than this. If, that's what, if that thought has ever crept into your head, you're correct. Your intuition is correct. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more going on and there's a lot that ties it together. So this is what, again, this is what I view. This is my reason for being alive. And this is what, you know, the Lord wants me to do to be a dot connector. Yeah. It's not yeah. a fancy job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's an you know, important it's, job. I think it's in court. Absolutely. And for the, for, for those who are listening, if you're anything like me, where I've well I went to Bible school 3 years studied the Bible did a lot of missions traveled the world preaching the gospel and I just had a lot of questions I wasn't satisfied with the shallow answers that I got about Satan and the fall and all the confusing things around Genesis 6 and the Nephilim and I just didn't I always I'm always just diving deeper just hungry for truth and I got my um and yeah God has revealed to me through the Holy Spirit things over the years but still it was Very incomplete, and and getting a hold of this book, the unseen realm, as well as reading Reversing Hermon by by uh, Doctor Michael Heiser, and I just I'm just getting into his book Angels. He has a book coming out called Demons. All these books are going to be huge for you in terms of understanding sections of scripture that we just haven't gotten a full picture on, a very incomplete picture. Even just learned falsehoods over the years from people who probably didn't have you know um, rotten intentions. They just didn't know themselves, and so. I highly recommend. Right, right. I highly recommend if this has wet your whistle at all. If this has made you think. If this has intrigued you, which I'm sure that it has. Uh, uh, just understanding these things has just turned my world upside down. and brought so much clarity and truth to me. I highly recommend grabbing a copy of the Unseen Realm or Supernatural, which is the more compact version where it kind of you know brings it down to more you know um you know modern language in terms of just just the you know less less footnotes and and all that kind of stuff so the unseen realm supernatural any of these books please grab a hold of them and 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 Dr. Michael Heiser how could um those who are listening right now that are hungry for more how could they get a hold of you know your you know your teachings your podcasts, all of that mm-hmm. how could they connect with your ministry and your
1: Yeah the all the books are available on Amazon and I should mention I actually have a book that is for seekers and new believers called what does god want it prepares people for supernatural you know the very beginning and then supernatural again perhaps people for unseen realms so mm-hmm. all that is available on amazon my podcast is the naked bible podcast so the naked bible dot com uh where we we have interviews but we you know we spend most of our time going through scripture either book studies or topically um My homepage is DR, as in Dr. D-R-M-S-H. Those are my initials, drmsh.com. And you should also be aware that I have have my own school now with, again, a long story of Providence. If you want to listen to the story, it's Naked Bible Podcast, episode 279. But I'm in Jacksonville, Florida now. Uh, We have a two-year school just for anybody who cares about Scripture. It's not degrees or anything like that. First year we we spend 30 weeks going through the content of unseen realm, and second year we do you know apologetics topics and, and whatnot. But that's schooloftheology.com. dot uh, com. You can take it online. Um, you know, it, it just started this this term this spring, so we will again be opening registration again. Yeah, I think it, it's in June. Registration will open,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: we've got 800 people in there now. You know, doing the it's by video, it's Q and A. Um, you know, it, it, it's a good start. You know, it, it, it's important again because it transcends our denominational traditions. It transcends the things that divide us. It gets us focused on the biblical meta narrative and the, the core ideas of the faith. But also, opens up Scripture to us in a in really a significant way. And again, I say that not because it's marketing shtick. Mm-hmm. I say that because it happened to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I had I went through the whole process myself.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful that you did. I'm very grateful that you did. And so (laughs) thank you, um, Dr. Heiser, for spending time with me today. I know you got a lot going on with your podcast and your school and everything that's taken place in your life. And so thank you so much for taking the time on this Saturday to uh, be with me, to speak to my listeners. Um, It was enlightening for me. And um, I look forward to spreading the word and passing out copies of The Supernatural and diving into your new book, Demons, which is coming out when exactly?
1: Yeah, and the there. End of April.
0: The end of April. Perfect.
1: You can can pre-order it on Amazon, but it'll ship at the
0: end of April. Okay, perfect, perfect. So grab your copy of Demons. Uh, You could pre-order it now. It'll be available the end of April. And thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, and for those who are listening, thank you so much for tuning in to Awaken Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Tell your friends and family members about it. Get this out to more viewers. So they could be challenged, inspired, enlightened by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward to speaking with you next time on Awaken Podcast.